0: Well, hello, friends, and welcome to episode 116 of the Burden of Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Breon. Today's guest is a very special guest. is one of my few uh, returning guests from the show. You may remember Mr. Anthony Casablanca from episode 77. Now, you're going to notice that there's going to be a lot of links here in the show notes uh, to past shows, including Anthony's. Uh, And then another one to a Mr. Mark Deluzio, who was another fan favorite of y'all's. But what I'm going to say is make sure that you listen to this episode in its entirety, uh, because there's there's a lot of great stuff being offered by Anthony throughout this podcast. Now, the links are going to be in the show notes, but so you know why the links are relevant, make sure you listen. With that, Anthony needs no real introduction. You all are familiar with him already with his work at Grief Leaders and his book, The Dying Art of Leadership. If not, go back and check out episode 77 because he'll be a good primer for this one. With that, I'm just going to go ahead and hop out of the way, let the stinger play, and let you get into this outstanding interview with Anthony Casablanca. All right. Well, hello, listeners, and welcome to this episode of the Burden of Command podcast. I've got a very special guest with you. You probably heard this in the pre-roll bio, but I'm going to say it again here on this side of the tape. Uh, Our guest is Anthony Casablanca, a uh, returning guest. Uh, He was a guest that you all loved back in episode 77, and we talked then about his book uh, that he and his brother wrote together, The Dying Art of Leadership, How Leaders Can Help Grieving Employees Excel at Work. And we had such a fantastic conversation uh, that I went ahead then and extended, Anthony, the opportunity to come back on because I felt we had a lot more to unpack. And since then, uh, you have kind of, I I guess, maybe a little bit laser focused in a certain area of, of helping uh, tie grief and change management together a little bit tighter. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, yeah, it actually it absolutely is, Earl. Based on uh, based on things we're, that we're hearing back from CEOs, uh, you know, what organization is not implementing just a ton of change right now uh, as they try to ramp back up after uh, after the COVID lockdowns and and the the business disruption that they had, uh, and so uh, CEOs are, are are telling us that that's an area that they need help with, is is navigating uh, the change management piece of the business.
0: No, absolutely. With everything that's going on, that makes perfect sense. Now, before we dive deep into that, I want to give you a chance to, you know, kind of maybe revisit or maybe with this kind of new focus, maybe you got a different take on that kind of foundational question. When you hear the phrase burden of command now, what does that mean to you?
1: Um, you know, uh, I, I think I would refine the answer a little bit. I don't know that I would change my answer very much. But, you know, the burden of command is really all about, it, in my mind, um, it's about respect for people. It's about creating uh, an emotionally safe work environment um, where people can raise their hands and admit that they are struggling or need help without any negative repercussions. And, and that could be either as the result of uh, something that's going on in their personal lives or the result of organizational change that's going on that they are having a hard time adapting to. Uh, and so, you know, I think in my first, uh, my first response, I may have talked about managing things and leading people Um, and having a people first mission, always approach to things, which, which is still very, very true. And this plays very much into it. Um, but you know, the burden of command I think is about respect for people. It's about creating an emotional, emotionally safe environment for folks. And I think it's about vulnerability and, um, and a lot of leaders, um, uh, especially in in smaller organizations, potentially, or or maybe just leadership in general, tends to think they have to have all the answers and they have to be the one who shines the bright light and all of those kinds of things. And and the reality is the more vulnerable a leader is, the more impactful they will be uh, and the more productive their team will be.
0: No, I love that. And it is 100% true. And so you used a couple of terms in there uh, that I think are getting used a lot more, thank goodness, lately. But people are still a little unfamiliar with. So you talk about emotional safety, uh, and you mentioned a little bit about psychological safety. So, you know, what is an emotionally safe work environment? What does that look like?
1: Um. So great question, uh, and I'm I'm actually gonna I'm I'm gonna tie two concepts together that of that of respect for people and then emotional safety, because I think where one leaves off, the other one begins. So, you know, <clears throat> if your organization views respect for people as just, you know, hey, we, we don't offend anybody, we treat everybody with dignity and respect, um, that's kind of jacks are better to open, right? There's there's a whole stair step of things that includes seeking to understand um, – uh, you know, that kind of attitude of, of learning, developing yourself and others, doing what's right, uh, even if there may be negative implications for the leader, but always do it. Having the courage, I guess, to do what's right, acting with compassion. And then we mentioned the word vulnerability in the answer to the previous question, <clears throat> a leader that that is vulnerable and creates an environment of vulnerability, if you can get to that level of respect for people, it's that vulnerability piece that is then becomes the platform and the and the stepping stone for emotional safety um, in the organization to to thrive. Right, because if you get the vulnerability piece right, you build trust, you build teamwork and morale and engagement and discretionary effort and productivity all skyrocket and increase um, because not only are people willing to raise their hand and and have the the environment encourages them to raise their hand and say I need help but that spills over to just raising your hand and challenging right there's a there's a lot of folks leadership comes with a level of intimidation whether the leader wants it or not Right, or whether the leader projects it or not. The mere fact that you control someone's raises, bonuses, promotions um, brings with it a level of intimidation and fear that if I say the wrong thing, that's going to come back and hurt me at some point. Um, and a leader who can, who can lay that foundation of we are vulnerable here, I am vulnerable as a leader, I don't have all the answers, I know I don't have all the answers – there's times that I'm struggling, and when I am, I'm going to talk to the team about it. When you get that kind of environment, then the team is very willing to to raise their hand or speak up and say, "I don't think I agree with with the direction we want to head, or with that idea, or with that thought, or you know those kinds of things." And so, you know, not just around the areas of grief and tra- trauma and change, but in just in the everyday underpinnings of of the organization, a leader who can instill vulnerability gets, gets far more high performance out of their teams than those who don't.
0: Yeah, no, I agree with that hundred percent and not just, uh, you know, better performance, but better results too, right? Cause that, that challenging, that, that asking the questions that, uh, you know, feeling safe enough to say, like we're, you know, talking about change, for instance, you know, because in the environment that we're in right now, a lot of folks are changing because they have to, but some folks are changing because they think they have to. Huh.
1: Yes. Yes, and, to
0: both. It, right. And, 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 you know, that's where maybe that person coming back and saying, hey, okay, you're, you're changing. Are we changing for a good reason? Or are we changing just to keep up with the times? Or have you considered this piece of change? That's extremely valuable to an organization on its own right, right?
1: Correct. Correct. Right. And, and the real, the real barrier to emotional change that has to be broken down is the notion that if you do raise your hand and even if you're, even if you are way off base or it was, um, you missed a critical point, um, when you, when you questioned what the change was going to be or whatever, that 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 doesn't have negative repercussions, right? There's no negative reaction. There's no judgment. Um, it's it's a very safe environment to speak up, um, and you know, on, and and it's hard enough on the business side. It's it's really hard on the personal side, right? Because in environments that that don't foster a high level of respect for people. Um, or emotional safety, uh, in the psychological safety in the workplace, they, um, uh, it becomes, I mean, an employee has to have a lot, a lot of courage to go in and raise their hand on a personal matter and say they need help. Um, uh, I I could cite example after example of folks who did that only to have things come back to them in in their reviews as challenges to their their career and things that they needed to work to overcome when in reality, they just went in and said, Hey, I am struggling. The, the case that I can think of off the top of my head is a woman who was struggling with depression and went into her boss and said, uh, I am, I am struggling with this and I am really, uh, I, I need help. I really need help. And a couple of months later, it came back to her in her annual review, uh, <clears throat> that she doesn't bring her most personable and bubbly self to work. Uh, And uh, at times can can be unprofessional. Um, And it all stemmed from her her admitting that she was there was depression and that she needed help. And uh, so, you know, emotional safety, uh, psychological safety is uh, uh, is is something that is being talked about a lot now. Uh, But I think a lot of organizations still just view safety in terms of the the physical realm, right? We don't want people getting hurt on the job. Uh, And there's a whole psychological piece to this that organizations need to begin to pay attention to.
0: Yeah, well, I don't know if it came through on the microphone or not, but as you were telling that story, I was over here grinding my teeth because – you know, that, that is just completely the wrong response to mental health issues, especially in the environment we're in right now. And, you know, I, I can't tell you like how many times is a veteran, you know, I've seen fellow veterans kind of do that same thing to other veterans, start talking about their PTSD. And, you know, there's a stigma associated with admitting that you have anxiety, that you have stress, that you have, uh, you know, whatever the case may be. And- and when somebody comes to you, I don't know, this this is my point of view, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we're kind of singing in harmony on this one. When somebody trusts you enough to open up to that level, you owe them the, the courtesy to respect that and, and help them because they're basically telling you, hey, I trust you as a leader to take care of me and then to turn around and use it against them. That's just like the ultimate betrayal, right?
1: Right. Right, and and unfortunately, you know, as we talked about in the first interview, there's no training. Right, leaders are not trained on how to deal with this. Right, um, it's not offered in any business schools. Uh, most consultants will tell you, "Yeah, I can help you with grief," but they just give you a list of do's and don'ts. You know, what to say, what not to say, kind of thing. Um, but it takes great courage and great compassion. For a leader to actually listen uh, and then adapt their style to to actually help the individual navigate the emotion of change that's going on in their life, which is really what it is. I mean, um, that's really what we're talking about here is uh, is something uh, has occurred. Uh, any emotionally traumatic event that's significant enough to alter a person's sense of reality will cause them to grieve. Um, and what we're really talking about here is recognizing that and a leader having the courage to act with compassion uh, and help that stand alongside, if not even behind, that person to give them the space and the support they need as they deal with whatever the issue is
0: yeah, well, and and I love that definition there, right? so i'm I'm going to repeat this uh, as best as I can remember from what you said. but you what I heard was any emotionally traumatic event that is significant enough to alter a person's sense of reality. Now, that is critical because, you know, a lot of times we think about grief and and these sort of things is, you know, like a death in the family or a breakup. And, and those are really kind of the two big categories, maybe a divorce, something like that. Uh, but, you know, we don't think about it like what we're going through right now. Uh, now we're we're recording this episode at the end of June, but like there's, you can't really look at a media source right now without seeing some variation of the headline. People are choosing to quit their jobs versus go back to them post-pandemic. And this is a subtle change in what we've been, how we've been operating over the past year, year and a half. And this is triggering some of that kind of grief of having to go back into maybe a a not such emotionally safe environment, causing people to choose that option of quitting their job or looking for employment elsewhere versus going back, right?
1: Right, right. It's uh, so clearly the pandemic was a... Was a an, an emotionally traumatic event that altered p- altered people's sense of reality, and people grieved, and are grieving as a result of that. And quite frankly, I was I was talking to the president of a division a couple of weeks ago, and he said, "You know, it's it's amazing, but uh, my people are struggling with now coming back into the office, um, and." And what I think he was really saying, and of course he, having the traditional view of change, right? He viewed it as, you know, they resisted working from home when we shut the office down. They didn't really want to do that. Now they've worked from home. Now they're resisting coming back to work. They're just resistant to change. And the reality is, is it's, it's, it's a disruption in their sense of reality, right? And they are, they are concerned about safety and other things when they return to the office and who's been vaccinated and who hasn't and, you know, all of those kinds of things. Um, And so clearly the pandemic put all kinds of stresses on people, financial stresses, relationship stresses. Um, You know, when when you're living with your spouse, when you get up, when you and your spouse get up and are able to go to work every day, uh, drop the kids off at daycare, send them off to school, go off to work, spend eight or ten or twelve hours at work, come back, have dinner. Um, you know that relationship, what it takes to keep that relationship strong, gets really tested when you are together twenty four hours a day, um, and your child is not in school, right? Um, and so there's been a lot of relationships. In fact, there was a there was a uh, there was a YouTube video that went viral about. Um, uh, about a gentleman who was posed the question about, you know, work from home or go back to work. And he was, he was like, clearly go back to work. Absolutely go back to work. I have got to go back to work. Um, uh, because it was just the, the stresses of being together and cooped up in a house or an apartment were, were, were staggering for people. But, you know, aside from all of that, uh, and you know, I know I'm in Indiana, Earl. You're in Indianapolis. You know, another one. People woke up in this state two months ago to a mass shooting in in at the Federal Express facility in Indianapolis, and that created enormous amounts of of grief and and changes in reality. And and you know, the thing that we don't think about is we say, well, you know, we'll send them to counseling and all of that. Um, but for the reality is, every time those folks come to work, that thought—that's a trigger point for them, right? No, no pun intended there. Uh, but that's that's a trigger point for them of the reality that took place on that you know on that day a couple of months ago. Um, and and I'm seeing that play out firsthand in my in my new son-in-law who uh, was working um, after hours one night or close to closing at an apartment complex. In a relatively good part, I mean, a good part of Chicago, right? A suburb of Chicago, actually, Orland Park. Um, And they had a, apparently, they had a a tenant in the building uh, who was subletting his apartment to a less than honorable character. And there was a drive-by shooting. Uh, And the bullet pierced the glass of the office that that my son-in-law was in. Uh, He was the only one there. Had he been standing three feet further to one direction, uh, he would have been a victim of the shot. And he is struggling. Um, It was a part-time job for him. He was there on a Saturday. Um, He has not been back to work since. And the reason he hasn't been back to work is because he's not sure how he will react when he has to go back through that door and sit in that office um and so you know once people's sense of reality gets altered it's it, it it is a it's altered forever right they never get over it they just get through it um and and organizations and leaders need to realize that and your own initiatives at an organization will cause people to grieve
0: yeah, no, I agree. And I don't know if you've seen it or not, but there's a great article that's been making its way around just in the past few days. I want to say the Capital Weather Gang uh, wrote it. It was talking about talking about this, uh, the the unseen impact of severe weather events on uh, weather forecasters for the National Weather Service. And it tells this great story of one of the forecasters down in Huntsville during uh, their outbreak Um I, I can't remember what the dates are in the outbreak, but he was at work issuing tornado warnings, issued a tornado warning for where he lives, Right. was talking to his wife on the phone and telling her, you know, what to do, what to do with the kids and all that good stuff. And the phone goes dead. But he's still at work. He's still got a job. He's still got other lives and property to save and protect. Right. But now he doesn't know what's going on with his family. Right. And that is, you know, I mean, if that doesn't kind of alter your sense of reality, because, uh, you know, humans have this thing called the optimism bias where, you know, yeah, that's tragic, but it's never going to happen to me. And that's that reality that really gets violated, like with with your son-in-law. You know, you see that he sees these things on TV. Right. It's never really going to happen to me. Right, but now it almost did, and that reality just got ripped, away, or that optimism bias just got ripped away. Right,
1: right, right. Yep, absolutely.
0: So, as a leader, um, as somebody who you know is is taking the time, because one thing I know that we we sing in harmony with is is uh, you know here at the Leadership Phalanx, I talk a lot about the importance of getting to know your team, the uh, getting to know you know are they married, do they have kids. And doing it in a very organic relationship building way, not kind of a grilling here, fill out this questionnaire, uh-huh. but as leaders who really care about our people, how can we better help them deal with these types of situations that we're going through right now?
1: Sure um so uh, a couple of things the um We, we use some imagery uh, when we talk to folks uh when we give signature talks or we're doing book signings or we're in talking with organizations uh and I'm going to use this to set up the answer a little bit but if you if you think about what we're talking about in terms of a storm right a, a supercell storm that is ultimately going to spawn a, to- a tornado right so you have this these this this ominous cloud right and a traumatic event happens either in a person's personal life or at work. Um, And that event spawns a tornado, right? The grief cycle. And where that tornado strikes the ground is where all the devastation happens. Those are the performance issues that will arise, um, potentially, if, if the tornado picks up speed. And leaders tend to wait for because they're not trained, right? And frankly, because they have likely been talked to about their HR by their HR department or their attorneys about privacy and this that and the other thing and you know all of those kinds of things. Um, they wait for the performance issues to happen and then they deal with the performance issues and that just makes matters worse uh, because now the person, whatever the event was that they were struggling with, now they're also worried about losing their job or having the stresses of being on a performance improvement plan and told you're not doing well. When in fact the leader should engage in the process much earlier, um, as soon as they know of the event. Um, and you know, it's it's nothing. It's it's really nothing more. Now, if the leader hasn't taken your advice, Earl, and and gotten to know their people, it's going to seem even more unusual, but this is nothing more than the leader, um, having the courage to deal with the awkward moment and the uncomfortable moment and the emotional moment, um, and sitting down with the, with the individual and just talking to them. That's all you're doing, right? You're just talking to them. You know, I know, you know, you had something go on or I'm noticing some behavior. And I just want to understand um, what's going on. I, I'll, I'll give you an example. This this just happened with me this week. I was down uh, at a customer client um, doing some work and I was uh, it, not interviewing, but having a discussion. It was a site visit for me to learn more about the organization. And I was sitting talking to one of their high potentials And during the discussion, he was not articulating himself the way I had been led to believe that he would. And in fact, he seemed very distracted. Now, this was the first time I had met this individual. So rather than engage in the discussion and put him on the defensive um, to talk about a Something that was bothering him personally with someone he doesn't even really know. Uh, I went back to the VP of HR, who's the one who brought me in on this engagement, and had this conversation with them. And subsequently, he went in to talk to this individual and said, You know, hey, uh, Anthony got done speaking with you, and he said you seemed distracted. And and it's kind of like not, not yourself, based on what what I told him about you. Is everything all right? And the gentleman said, No. Um, I got a lot of things going on right now that I need to to work through at home. Um, and and I'm I, now is not a good time for me to talk about it. But there's, but I, but I got, I am distracted, and there's, there's something going on. Um, now this VP of HR, who is a is a follower and an advocate of the work we're doing, will follow up with that individual if he hasn't already this week. He will probably early next week. Now he knows of some things going on in this individual's life with needing to find housing and some other things that are going on, and um, but that's a that is a classic example of how this plays out, right? It's just, it's being observant and it's having the courage to go in and open the door for the conversation and then sitting silently and letting the person talk, right? Because oftentimes that's what the person needs to do is just talk about it and get it off their chest to help them think more clearly, right? You're not there to solve the problem for them you're not going to be able to fix whatever it is, um, but you might be able to support them as they are working through whatever the issue is on their own. And so, you know, that was, that was an example that just happened on Monday of this week uh, where I, as a total stranger, um, recognized behavior that didn't seem um, consistent with the way this person had been described to me. Uh, and when I went and talked to the VP of HR, and he went and talked, and they, they were colleagues, by the way, they were they are teammates. They're uh, the VP of HR, and the individual I'm talking about was the Vice President of Operations, so they were colleagues. Um, and and sure enough, there's something going on in this individual's life that that he is struggling with, and and uh, and the organization will be flexible, and I'm sure they'll help him. But that's how these things play out. So be be sensitive, be aware. Particularly if it's your own company initiative that has been announced, people are going to react to that. Um, and create the space for folks to talk about it. Um, if not with you, with someone in the organization, even if it's another team member. Um, that's, that's the starting point.
0: Yeah. No, and I, I love that. And I love that that story there and and you said something there that i think is really critical because i'm with you whenever we start talking about these things uh you know i can hear the air being sucked out of the room as uh hr folks kind of pucker up right because right. you know the the way the laws are written they forbid you from essentially interrogating the person, asking them, what religion are you? Uh, what sexual orientation are you? What, what, what religion do you, uh, you know, what religions do you practice? Right. You can't do that, right? Right. What you can do is what Anthony and I've been talking about here. You can build the relationships. You can talk to people. You can make those observations when somebody shows you their uh, family photos and it's, two men or two women as a couple, well, now you know the answer to that question. And and what gets you in trouble as a leader is if you use that information for ill will. What makes you great as a leader is when you use that information to help, like what Anthony is talking about here. You know, so, you know, one of the classic examples is most organizations, because we are a predominantly Christian culture, a lot of organizations will just give Christmas Eve off as a holiday. Well, what if you have Muslim employees? What if you have Jewish employees? What if you have Japanese employees? How can you use that information to their benefit so they feel more valued to the organization because you know and respect them and their cultures? And then when these grief things pop up, they know that you care. And I love the way Dr. Brene Brown says it because it's it's clear and succinct. She says, People give a damn that you give a damn. Right. And that's what we're talking about here. So don't, you know, I don't want you to hear anything that Anthony and I are saying and say, you know, forget your HR department and start grilling your people. And you want to find out all this personal information. No. Have lunches, Uh, have legitimate functions, not mandatory fun, have legitimate functions where you get a chance to talk to people. You get to know the folks around you so you can pick up on these cues that Anthony's talking about, because when people's reality get altered, that definition we use, their behaviors change from the norm, and you should be able to pick up on it pretty quick before they get too far down the road and start experiencing these performance issues. Right,
1: right, right, exactly. And um, uh, you know, I'll just I'll just share this one little quip with you real quick here. Uh, but I was being interviewed by an attorney. Uh, she did a pod. She was doing a podcast. An attorney from California, and we got on this topic. Um, and you know, if if any state. Is, 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 uh, uh, an outlier or, or more, I shouldn't say an outlier. If any state is, is, is strict on, on their protections of, of employees and privacy, it would be California. And, um, and she, she made the comment, I love this discussion because there are no laws against listening. And as long as you don't go back and share the specifics, There is nothing – you are not violating any privacy laws. Um, Mm -hmm. And if the person says they don't want to talk about it, then, you know, hey, they don't want to talk about it, right? Um, And you leave the room and tell them, look, you know, whatever it is, just know you can come in my office, close the door, and share anything you need to share with me uh, because I really – and the organization would really like to help you through whatever it is that you're struggling with. Um, but I understand if now is not a good time for you to talk about it, and eventually, the, the person will will open up. Um, but I thought I thought her her statement was was uh, incredibly encouraging that there are no laws against listening.
0: Yeah, no, definitely, and, and I would say the key factor here too is, you know, well, I would say two things in what what you just said, and again, correct me if I'm wrong on anything. Is just, one, you have to mean it; don't say it follow through. Right. And two is if the person doesn't want to open up, accept it. Don't get offended. That just tells you that you have some work to do to earn that trust or that the trauma or grief that they're going through whatever it is, it's just too deep for them to be able to express right now.
1: Correct. I love it. Correct. That. Yep. Yep, um that's that's you're you're exactly right.
0: Nice. I like being right every once in a while. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so one of the things that I love, having had the opportunity to set in on a few of of sessions uh, that you do, uh you you talk about this uh kind of equation, if you will, about about figuring out kind of like the, the level of grief. Yeah. Uh, can you go through that with folks real quick?
1: Yeah, I can. Um with with the uh with the caveat that you know, you cannot put grief in an equation, really. But uh, those who have sat through webinars and, and some of the other, some of our trainings, some of our talks, um, I, I'm big on imagery, right? And so if I can get you to remember a couple of components by putting it in an equation, then I'm more than happy to do that. And so the equation that we, that we talk about is um, the level of grief, L O G is equal to the depth of the relationship, d-o-r, times the suddenness of the event, SOE, raised to the factor of complicating factors. So now that I gave you that, L-O-G equals d-o-r times SOE raised to a a factor, right? Um, Here's what that really means. So the closer a person is to the event, right, the, the deeper the level of grief will likely be, right? So, so I will be far more devastated by me losing my job than I will you losing your job, right? Um, uh, the suddenness of the event is a multiplier, right? So if I didn't see it coming that i was losing my job man that really hits me right i am in i am in shock and disarray right it's one thing to to think well i saw this coming i saw all the signs i knew the you know the plant would be closing or we were going to have a layoff right but so so i will use a current event to demonstrate this right but covid hits and overnight Workforces are shed and people are out of work, right? They didn't see it coming. I was barely paying my bills, and now I'm my company let me go, right? And I had no clue this was coming, and it happened just that fast, right? Depth of the relationship, so the closer you are to the event, suddenness, right? That's why someone who dies um uh from a, a a prolonged illness is a little easier. Every you still grieve and you still grieve deeply, but you you do not have the issues of someone who is murdered, right? Um, and again, I can use COVID as an example, right? Someone and this is a true story: eighty-three year old woman in a nursing home hasn't seen their family in months because of the COVID lockdowns. Develops a fever, tests positive for COVID. Um, They call the family and say they need to move her to a hospital. The hospital calls and says her fever spiked. We're putting her on a ventilator. Within 12 hours, they call her back and say, they call the family back and say she is not doing well and she's not responding to the ventilator, so they're going to take her off the ventilator. And three minutes later, they call back and say she's dead. That family, and then to compound it, There were restrictions on the number of people who could attend the funeral, so half the family couldn't even attend the funeral, right, because they were only allowed 20 people in the room or 15 people, whatever it was at the time. Now, so here's a woman, hadn't seen her family in months, the family could not be there while she was ill, the family was not there at her bedside when she died, a stranger unplugged her and three minutes later she was dead. That family is grieving and dealing with emotions that two years ago, that same woman who is seeing her family every week or every month develops the flu, gets pneumonia, the family's by her side, she slips, you know, pneumonia takes her over And she slips away, but the family is there and she dies very peacefully with her family all around her and they can have, however they define, a good funeral, right? They can have an appropriate funeral for her and grieve that loss uh, with family. Those two, the, the, the exact same family is grieving totally different over those two events. One feels like, A natural, hey, she was 83, she had a great life. Um, You know, it's a shame, but it's not unexpected, right? People get the flu. We knew this could happen. On the other hand, they feel no different than if this woman was murdered in the nursing home. They were angry at the nursing home. They were angry at the funeral home. They were angry at the hospital. They were angry at the staff. Uh, although they were very thankful for the nurses who at least had them on the phone um, they were they were angry at the governor for the shutdown um, it, it's horrible right and same relative circumstances one because of the suddenness uh, felt very very much violated like a violation of this family's um closeness and relationship where the other one would have felt like a natural passing. So depth of relationship and suddenness of the event. And then that gets compounded by whatever else you've got going on in your life. And those those three things explain why no two people grieve the same, why no traumatic event, no matter how similar, is the same. Uh, why grief is not linear and why grief has no timeline, right? Because, the you know, if you and I, if, if you've lost your job and I tell you, boy, I remember when I lost my job a couple of years ago, here's what I did to get through it. And I think I'm helping you. The reality is you losing your job and me losing my job, no matter how similar is not the same because I don't know about the complicating factors you have going on in your life, right? You may have been struggling to pay your bills before you lost your job. Now you are really, really falling behind fast. I may have had six months worth of savings. I could have gone six months, nine months without without working. No big deal. Take my time, right? So if I tell you, oh listen, Earl, take your time You're going to be fine. You'll come out this stronger than you were before. The job you'll get will be better. And you're thinking, easy for you to say, I'm already two months behind in my electric bill. You will grieve losing your job a heck of a lot differently than I will, right? And so that's the grief formula. And it's those compounding factors that often we don't know about as a leader, um, but need to take the time to understand.
0: No, I, I love that. And I love that formula. you're right. I, I I fully get that you can't break it down into a mathematical formula, but I think it is a great representation of the process and what you're talking there, because that, that complicating factors piece is, is really the wild card with all of it. Because again, and, and this goes back to the relationship building thing. And even if you were doing the best job out there of building the relationships with your folks, you're still not going to know every single possible complicating factor in the situation, right? So we've been talking here for a little over 40 minutes about this. And this has been great conversation as, as I knew it would be. It was one of the reasons why I didn't uh, bat an eye having you back on the show, because this is just, this is valuable information for folks, but you and I know this, but we also know that there's going to be some people who hear this and it's gonna say well you know this is all nice touchy feely hooey it has no real impact on my business what impact does grief trauma these sort of things actually have on the workplace
1: yeah yeah great question and and you know the reason people feel that way is because this isn't like scrap and rework um As two examples, right? You can't see this lost productivity, right? So, a couple of things. First of all, no organization is immune to this, right? Um, And and frankly, when you broaden the definition of grief to any emotionally traumatic event uh, that shifts a a person's reality, all of the initiatives that organizations are putting their people through right now to get back to pre-COVID profit levels are 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 mounting. So I would I would venture to say not only is no organization immune, I would say every organization is currently struggling with this. Uh, Every leader will face this at some point and person will face this. Uh, Studies have been done uh, by the Grief Recovery Institute that says one in four employees are impacted on a daily basis, right? One in four people that you meet today is grieving at some level. Uh, from some trauma that has occurred in their life, either personally or in the workplace. And that costs organization, just the grief component, costs organizations $100 billion a year in the U.S. in lost productivity. Now, when you expand that definition of the level of grief to including things that go on in the workplace and the realities that get shifted as a result of company initiatives and and need to cut costs and all of those kinds of things. Now you start to spill over into the employee burnout arena, right? And those numbers are are even more staggering, right? Uh, there was just a recent article that I read, uh, a study that was done that says that uh, employees suffering from burnout will cost organizations $200 billion dollars In additional healthcare costs this year. Uh, And that those impacted employees are 60% more likely to take sick days and two and a half times more likely to leave the organization. So turnover uh, becomes an issue. And and as I started this, this question, this answer with, there's no amount of Kaizen, no continuous improvement. There is no amount of continuous improvement that you can do that will uncover these issues right? Because you can't, you can't see it. You cannot see the person who is just sitting there frozen, staring at their computer. Their mind is a million miles away because they are worried about whatever it might be, right? Maybe their son has got a substance abuse problem. Maybe the person is a victim of domestic abuse, Maybe there's been a significant illness diagnosis of the employee or someone in their family. Um, maybe they're struggling with the fact that there's an enormous change coming, and their 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 new work load is going to be significant. Right? Who knows what the issues are? But you can't. You're not there all the time uh, to witness the. You know the the time spent. In depression and anger and crying and maybe the errors are showing up but at a minimum this person's probably having to rework what they're doing because they're not concentrating right they're in a fog they're in a daze very hard to see and then you got the team dynamics that come out where people are arguing or they're 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 angry right so maybe they're short with people and they're you know they're losing trust and and teamwork is eroding because wow, nobody wants to deal with Anthony. What what's his problem, right? Um, and so it's really it's it is truly a hidden cost of business, but it is very real. Very real.
0: Uh yeah, no, and and what I love about those numbers there, and I'm gonna, you know, add a little bit onto it here, is you know, we, we talk a lot about employee disengagement right now. We throw out the seventy percent number and how Uh, I think it's like 40% of those folks are actively disengaged and 30% of those uh, are actively working to undermine the organization. And and people's initial reaction is, oh, that's just because we've got a terrible workforce. Nobody ever really stops to think about this element of it and how terrible leadership, not paying attention to the emotional well-being of that workforce is a direct result of having 70% disengagement. Right. So, right. So if we take care of this, we can change these numbers drastically. And that alone to me says this is worth the time and investment uh, in, in our people, in our leadership. Right.
1: Right. Right. And, and you know, um, I, I just want to say this because it's very easy for this to feel like we are talking about um, a very isolated, you know, the leader only has to behave this way. When there's an incident, right, or when there's an issue, um, and what we what we actually teach in our leadership training, we teach an adaptive leadership model, which which we would encourage leaders, and frankly, it it, it truly only works if the leader adopts that model as the way they lead, right? Because if they will adapt, uh, if they will adopt that model as the way they lead then those things that we talked about, those stair steps to respect for people leading up to sort of the pinnacle of vulnerability, which then becomes the platform for the stair steps to emotional safety. When, when the leader behaves that way always and takes the view that it is their responsibility as the leader to adapt their leadership style to meet the needs of their people, um, surrounding whatever circumstances there are, be it where they are in their development cycle, be it uh, whether they're in a new assignment or not, be it there's an issue, uh, you know, an emotionally traumatic event that has occurred. Um, when the leader operates in that manner from that perspective every single day, then all of this, frankly, if the leader did that, we wouldn't have to talk about it. Uh, but the problem is, most leaders latch on to. I, we've we've called it in the book managing uniformly. Most leaders latch on to a style that works for them, whatever that style is, and then they apply it to all of their people in every circumstance. And you know that that's sort of like that's sort of like a clock that has stopped running. Right, twice a day, the time is right. And leaders who adapt a single leadership style because it is comfortable to them run the risk uh, and a very high risk of the likelihood that most of the people on their team will really not be responsive to that leadership style because it doesn't fit the needs that they have at, a, at, a, at any given moment. And I don't want to get into all the specifics of that because there's a matrix and all kinds of things that we could talk about. But at the end of the day, everybody is at a different spot in their development curve, and everybody needs, and everybody's at a different spot in the the factors that are going on, both in their work life and in their personal life. And a leader who only has one way to lead or only uses one way to lead actually winds up alienating a vast majority of his team um, because they're not. He's not. They're not providing the support and the guidance and the development uh, that the that the person needs for where they are. And there's there's five factors that I won't go into here uh, that we teach um, that help leaders determine where a person might fall on that adaptability scale and which leadership style might be more appropriate uh, for where folks fall on that on that scale. Um, Having said all of that, that is the topic of our webinar on July 28th. Uh, is we will actually go through the adaptive leadership model uh, that we that we uh, just that I just described here. Uh, we'll go through that in in fairly great detail in the hour that uh, that we have for that webinar. So uh, so if this piques anyone's interest, uh, there, you'll see it on LinkedIn. But July 28th uh, will be the third in the Respect for People series. Uh, The first one, we talked about those stair steps for respect for people. Uh, Just yesterday, we had the second one, which was around emotional safety and psychological safety in the workplace. And the next one in July uh, on the 28th is around the adaptive leadership model.
0: Outstanding. And um, if you do me a favor and get me the the Zoom link for that, I'll make sure I put that in the show notes for this so folks can sign up for it. Um, I plan to be there for that one, so you'll get a chance to... Uh, to interact with me as well. Uh, I've had a chance to sit in on on one of these sessions and I'm waiting for the the one I missed to come out. These are great sessions. Uh, You'll get to meet, uh, is is Mark going to be with you on the one on the 28th?
1: Mark will be there, yes. So uh, yeah, so they are grief leader sessions. Uh, We host them, but Mark uh, Deluzio from Lean Horizons uh, sponsors them. So he's been very gracious to uh, to allow us to leverage uh, his his network and his connections uh, to get this message out, uh, and it fits very nicely with what Mark does. Mark is the is sort of the the acknowledged uh, architect of the Danaher business system, and one of one of a handful of the thought leaders in the lean space. And respect for people is a foundational principle of what he teaches organizations to put in place, and so he saw this as a natural link to to his clients, uh, which is why he's sponsoring the events.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely, and listeners, you'll remember Mark from uh, back in episode 52, uh, so I'll put the links to that one in the show notes as well, so you can go back and listen to uh, Anthony's previous episode, you can go back and listen to Mark's episode, and we'll get that Zoom link in there so you can attend, and you'll get to see... Uh, a few of the folks who have been instrumental to this podcast over, uh, you know, the last, uh, you know, 50, 60 episodes, you'll get to see them live in, in action. And and with that, that's a thing that's a great segue. So let's, uh, as we work to close out here, let's talk about grief leaders. Like, um, you know, who are you? What do you do? What do you not do? How can you help right. an organization?
1: Right. Great. Great question, and I appreciate you uh, giving me the opportunity to answer that because we come out the world from a little bit different perspective. And so it's very easy for people to sort of pigeonhole us and be like, oh, well, you know, they deal with, with the whole death and grief thing and nothing could be further from the truth. Um, so so who we are, right? So who who is grief leaders and what do we do? So first of all, we are not grief counselors, and we are not trying to make leaders grief counselors that is not what we do that is and and frankly leaders shouldn't try to be grief counselors uh you get in trouble when you when you try to go down that path and 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 try to psychologically you know help people with your advice on we're not trained in that right and neither are leaders and we're not going to take them down that path but we do coach and train leaders uh and and we coach and train leaders um and and help companies understand the links between change management and respect for people, emotional safety, and adaptive leadership, right? Those three things, if an organization can get those three things right, then they can navigate the emotions of change very, very effectively. And what sets us apart from, uh, from other sort of organizational change management organizations and, and consultants is is we recognize that there is an elephant in the room when we're talking about organizational change. And that elephant is grief. And, and no one wants to acknowledge it and no one wants to put that name on it. Uh, everybody wants to just say, well, you know, folks are resistant to change. Um, that that is not true. Folks are not resistant to change. They are resistant to being changed. And an emotionally traumatic event changes them. We recognize that and we help leaders and employees and organizations navigate through that emotional component of change uh, so that they can be more, more productive and, and more effective um, and more resilient and have a greater capacity to absorb change as they move forward. So that's who we are. That's what we do. And, and our training is, is, is designed um, – well, first of all, we won't do any training unless we unless we better understand the organization uh, because we need the insights in order to customize the training, which also sort of sets us apart a little bit. It's why we teach the principles in our book. Uh, we customize to the organization based on the insi- insights we gain in our baseline assessments Um, And then we do the training. And then, you know, if we just walked away and said, hey, your organization's going through a whole lot of change. We understand that sucks to be you, but we're out of here now. We would be violating actually all of the principles that we teach in our book. Right. So so we ourselves then become uh, we stand alongside the organization uh, after the training uh, through coaching and through other things to help them navigate through the change process. So so that's what we do. That's who we are. That's what we do. And that's what sets us apart.
0: I love it. I love it. I love what y'all are doing. It's great work. Keep it up. Um, but last question, and maybe one of the more important questions here with uh, everything going on. People are listening. Leaders are bought in. They want to really make a change. And they realize, hey, Anthony and grief leaders might be the answer my organization needs how can I reach out to them and how can I uh, find out more about what they do and uh, set up to have them come out and and work with my leadership team and uh, help me with my organization?
1: Sure. Sure. Um, So a couple of ways. One is on our, uh, our website at griefleaders.com. There's a contact us page, uh, which will allow you to fill out a form and give us a few of the details uh, of why you, you think we might be a good fit for you or what you're struggling with. Uh, All of the initial calls are complimentary. So, you know, the clock's not ticking uh, when I call you back. Um, So that, no worries there. And then the other way is uh, reach out to me on, uh, connect with me on LinkedIn, send me a message, Anthony Casablanca, um, and be more than happy to connect and talk and explore uh, whether or not, you know, what we do would be right for your organization. And in all candor, we understand and we recognize that. Um, it, it takes an organization that is in a, in a certain spot, a certain mind f- mindset for us to be effective. Um, and if, and if we do not believe that that is the case, um, you know, we're not looking to just collect a paycheck, right? So if we don't think you're going to be happy with us um, for whatever reason, then, then we will not, we will not pursue the engagement. But, if there is a if there is a good fit, um, both from a uh, the standpoint of what your organization is dealing with and the culture of the organization, um, then we would love we would love to work with you. Absolutely love to work with you.
0: Love it, love it. Well, Anthony, thank you for being a uh, a repeat guest on the show. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation just as much, if not more, than our previous conversation, and. Uh, you know, who knows, maybe there's another conversation to be had in the future, but uh, I really appreciate what y'all are doing. Uh, I support it completely. I really hope folks that are in that place reach out and take advantage of what you have to offer. It's incredibly important uh, as leaders to take care of those folks that uh, put their faith in us. I mean, let's just be honest, when they come to work for us, they put a little bit of faith in us that we're going to take care of them and provide for their needs. And that's what this is all about. So again, Thank you and your organization for doing what you're doing and making the difference that you are.
1: Well, Earl, thank you so much for having me on again. It was absolutely a delight to be a repeat guest and uh, humbled by the fact that you had me back on.
0: Oh, I love it, man. All right, listeners, thank you for sticking with us. I know this one ran just a little bit longer than some of others, but you know this was a lot of good stuff here, so I'm sure that you all got a lot of great value out of it, and I appreciate you sticking with us. Uh, I, I love all my listeners. Thank you for doing the things that you're doing, rating, reviewing, subscribing, sharing the show so guests like Anthony can get their messages spread far and wide and and increase their impact. So thank you all for doing that. And you know, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns for me, you can reach me at burden.command at gmail.com. That's burden.command at gmail.com. With that, appreciate you all, and I look forward to speaking with you again
1: So, get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where, through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Electricast. Electricast.